0: Hi, I'm Dallas Rogers, and you're listening to the Conversation Speaking with Podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. Can you guess which one's Barney's?
1: Yeah.
0: Hello. Hey Barney.
2: Dallas, how are you?
0: Good. This is Nicole Cook. Hello. Nicole, good to, nice meet, to meet you. To meet you Barney. Yeah. Uh, Nicole's been As you can hear, uh, today we're out and about in the city. The the well, we're in Sydney to be precise. And we've just arrived at Barney <laughs> Gardner's house in the suburb of Millers Point, which is just under the Harbour Bridge.
3: Uh, yeah, so if
0: you like, um, Do you need to put some stuff down No, I was going to say if you oh, want to have a look at the place. Yeah, let's have a look. Now, no, you've actually I've Actually the first time I met I've spent a bit of time with Barney over the last couple of years, interviewing him for various research projects on inner-city gentrification. You see, Barney was born in Millers Point, and he's lived here all his life. A couple of years ago he told me he had to move out of his house and the neighbourhood because the public housing he was living in was being sold off. This is Barney talking about being evicted outside New South Wales State Parliament House in March 2014.
2: The Minister for Housing, Prue Gow, had stood on the viewing platform of the Carl Expressway, not less than a kilometre from here and less than a kilometre from where we live. She was about, she was about to divulge the future of us tenants that live down at Miller Point on national TV without the intestinal fortitude to come down and tell the tenants themselves. She was about to tear up a community, a community that has existed for over 200 years. A public housing estate that's been there for 100 years.
0: Barney tells me he's been fighting his eviction and fighting to save his community ever since. See, the land around Millers Point has been at the centre of tension between local placemaking and globalising forces for almost 250 years. It's the site of repeated waves of displacement, resistance and urban renewal. This is Tanya Plebisek, the member for Sydney and Deputy Leader of the Opposition, talking about the announcement of Millers Point evictions, also from March 2014.
2: Today the O'Farrell government have dropped a bomb on the inner city of Sydney. They've announced today, with no consultation and no warning, that they will sell almost 300 properties in Millers Point in Sydney. 300 homes that have been public housing for, some for generations. Uh, Families that have lived in Millers Point for one or two or three generations. People often ask what is the difference between a house and a home, and The difference between a house and a home is the family who live there, the people who live there. And you could just as easily ask the same question about a suburb, what's the difference between a suburb and a community? The difference between a suburb and a community are the people who live there, the people who've put their roots down there, the people who've sent their children to school there, the people who know each other, who know their neighbours, who help each other. And that's what Miller's point is, it's a community, it's a community with a long history And it's a community um, that has supported and cared for each other throughout that long history.
0: For most of the last two centuries, Miller's Point's proximity to major wharfs and maritime industries saw the place develop as a largely low-income, working-class neighbourhood, which in the early 1970s was saved from modernist development by the Green Bands. The Green Bands is a topic that Barney and Nicole Cook at the University of Wollongong know a thing or two about. So I'm down here with Nicole to talk about urban development in Sydney. And what the Green Bands can teach us about global Sydney.
1: The Green Bands were an important social movement in Sydney in the 1970s. They were an alliance between the New South Wales Builders Labourers Federation and a number of resident action groups who, at the time, were uh, really perplexed and I think challenging some of the decisions that were taken by the Askin State Government in terms of. Urban development and urban restructuring, and some fairly uh, large scale transport and kind of freeway decisions that were being taken. And these decisions and planning proposals were really affecting some significant places where people lived in Sydney at the time. And some of this was in the inner city, but it was also in suburban Sydney.
0: Here's Rock's resident, Nita McCrae, a member of the Coalition of Resident Action Group, speaking with filmmaker Pat Fisk about working with the unions. We sat down and wrote letters to all the unions, and I went through the phone book and found, you know, different unions and just addressed the letters to the secretary of a, of a union. The one I found was the Builders' Labourers Federation, and I didn't know who they were, so we just sent a letter off to them addressed to the secretary. Of about 30 odd letters, that was the only reply we got back was from the Builders Labourers Federation of New South Wales. And in our letter, we had said to them that the Rocks community was made up of a lot of elderly people and working class people. The elderly people in the main were retired unionists, as the working people were members of unions, anyhow. And um, we had suggested to them, was it their policy to knock down other unionist houses?
1: That sort of marked, I think, the broad base and the the broad commitment of the New South Wales Builders Laborers Federation to urban issues, regardless of really the neighbourhood in which they were located. And I think this kind of is, is very interesting in thinking about this movement, not just as a social movement, but in fact as a planning movement.
0: Here's the infamous Jack Mundy, Secretary of the Builders Laborers Federation at the time, talking about the 1970s green bans
3: an essential theme that the residents put forward is this that there must be in all this city area provision for working class people for people of low and middle income to be able to reside in the area it's not much good winning a 35-hour week if we're going to choke to death in planless and polluted cities where rents are too high where ordinary people can't live there will never ever be any reconstruction any rejuvenation regeneration of this area until such time as the residents receive ironclad guarantees that people in the low-income brackets, workers, can afford to live in these areas.
1: There are a number of sites that the the union, in conjunction with and in alliance with resident action groups, decided that they will place a ban on. Their work wasn't going to be used to achieve these kind of plans of demolition, and also the removal of green space, and also the the removal of of heritage buildings. And so rather than calling this something like you would normally call this type of strike in terms of labour on, for instance, for industrial reasons, that is to improve people's wages, rather than calling it a black ban, which would be the name that you would give to an industrial strike. They started to refer to this, actually some some months after these actions had started occurring, um, as a green ban. And the green ban effectively um, was the removal of of labour from those sites that then disrupted the plans of the state government. And so it very much falls into uh, the realm of social action and activism.
0: So we heard Jack Mundy talking about the green bans as a political process aimed at providing affordable housing for low-income and working-class people in the city. So how do the green bands relate to affordable housing?
1: I think this site was really important because it was probably the third site I think that had a green band placed on it and because Miller's Point was was part of a huge urban renewal process in the 1970s. So The New South Wales State Government had just formed the Sydney Cove Redevelopment Authority. Millers Point was a part of this site and part of the jurisdiction of this newly formed authority. Was really earmarked for the first phase of large scale urban renewal, waterfront renewal uh, within Sydney. And this was very much a a kind of um, a contest really between the visions of government at the time to kind of create this, what we would think of today as a kind of global city feeling in that area and obviously the the property development that goes along with that.
0: This is the head of the Sydney Cove Redevelopment Authority, Owen McGee, talking to the media about the area at the time.
3: It's an area of um, old, Uh, warehouses, factories, many of them in fact built in the century. There is a large number of old deserted building sites where buildings have been knocked down, old corrugated iron and rusting fences and weeds and so forth. And of course there are some historical buildings there too. But by and large it's a rather depressing area and not really suitable as an entry to the city of Sydney.
1: That obviously conflicted with uh, the working class residents within the neighbourhood and because that area within Sydney has um, had a long tradition of settlement by wharf workers and and workers in the the docks that were in that area and there was a lot of uh, social housing and affordable housing in that neighbourhood as there is today, although the situation, obviously that situation is changing at the moment. And so these kind of plans that were proposed in the rocks really epitomised, I think, the tensions within the city at the time between a very strong, boosterous kind of Global city privatisation and and office development, and this sort of tradition, I guess, of of working class neighbourhoods, communities, and families. And so, this sort of same tension that we see today was really played out in the 1970s. And so, they were able to really defend this not just a matter of environmental significance, but also a matter of social significance within cities, and and to put forward an agenda that uh, really asserted, I think, the diverse attachments to place that people can have beyond those that were being articulated in the state government plans at the time.
0: So how significant were the green bands as an urban planning movement?
1: Hugely significant I think for, for kind of um, leveraging the green bands into the future but also in terms of the gains that were made there in terms of preserving that housing um, and buying time as well. And ultimately you know the Department of Housing eventually came on board in the mid-70s, planning legislation. Was starting to shift, um, and in fact, there was an extension of the affordable housing stock at that time with the very famous Sirius building. So, it did in fact become this extraordinary case, at the time certainly in New South Wales, of urban renewal that incorporated affordable housing.
0: But those who know Sydney well are aware that the Sirius building is now under threat of demolishment again. And the CFMEU put a green ban on the Sirius building in 2016 which has revitalised the debate about the role of green bands and public housing more generally.
1: We're here today to announce the sale of public housing properties at Millers Point. There's a total of 293 properties. You can see the series building over there. That is part of this sell-off uh, and we are confident that we can achieve this over the next two
0: years. Here's Liberal and Minister Prue Goward announcing the Millers Point, Millers Point sell-off that Barney mentioned earlier. But, uh,
1: We are very pleased that we've come to the decision where we can see our way to sell these properties in this magnificent area for the benefit of the entire social housing system in New South Wales.
0: Here's Colin Bissett with a truly British Grand Designs
3: take on the building. I noticed the Sirius Housing Complex as soon as I arrived in Sydney in 1996. Its stepped outline of stacked concrete boxes looks like something you'd expect to find in Detroit or Manchester. When I found out that it was a public housing development, then I thought that was wonderful, because it seemed magnificent to have social housing occupying pretty much the best seat in the house, with great views over Circular Quay like the way Australian campsites often have the best beach access. It's a sign of an egalitarian country, I told myself, foolishly believing the old chestnut about Australia. Because, like most cities, Sydney isn't about equality. It's about money and views. And so Sirius must go, its sold price allowing the building of new public housing on the outskirts of the city, removing families who have lived in the area for generations.
0: So, what do the green bands of the 1970s teach us about urban protest and urban change in the contemporary global city of Sydney? Nicole Cook again on the 1970s green bands.
1: It had started to generate, really, I think, quite a lot of resident protest. And the unique thing about this type of protest was really the involvement of the union at the time. And they felt that um, as the, the kind of workers who were enlisted in constructing this, you know, highly developed city that was potentially going to be threatening neighbourhoods, that they really had a right to have a say about some of the development that was proposed. And of course, they had quite a big role in this this process because their labour, as the Builders Laborers Federation, was really needed to undertake many of the plans that had been proposed because they would be involved, for instance, in clearing the sites for development. They would be involved in working with builders in in doing the sort of preparation. And so for them to sort of get on side with resident action groups and to say, Um, effectively we are not going to lend our support or our labour, particularly to to these types of plans, it it sort of really put a thorn in the side of certainly I think the state government but also uh, many developers at the time. And this action was really significant because it spanned a number of different uh, sites across the city and it ran for a number of years.
0: So given the CFMEU has already put a green ban on the Sirius Building, the remaining residents are holding out hope that the 1970s green bans might still have something to teach us. For his part, Barney Gardner is adamant. He won't be leaving without a fight.
2: I've told
3: them that, you know, I'm staying here, you'll have to evict me. And uh, I'm, just my voice for a lot more like me.
0: Thank you for listening to this Speaking With podcast. Just a reminder, you can subscribe to this podcast series on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. And if you like this podcast or have ideas or suggestions for the Speaking With series, please leave us a review or comment through iTunes. I'm Dallas Rogers. See you next time.